Well, it's really good for me to be back. I, I got to tell you, this is the third summer that I have uh, taken uh, more of an extended time away. Uh, that was not my pattern when I first got into ministry. And uh, probably a few years ago, I decided, uh, Kim and I did, that I was going to do a lot of concentrated preaching and leading in the uh, winter and then spring and then again in the fall and save up my uh, vacation and study time kind of together uh, in the summer. And, you know, the first two years that I did that, I, I went into it so exhausted <laughs> that I, uh, I, I really appreciated it and, uh, and, and kind of just collapsed and then took a few weeks to rejuvenate. And this year, I, I didn't go into it very tired at all. I, I had a great winter and spring uh, energy-wise. And, uh, and it was a different experience as a result of that. I, I felt like it was a great time uh, for me to get away and spend time with Kim and uh, family back in Ohio and Michigan, uh, but also to uh, get a lot of study and prep done for the, the year ahead. In fact, I got mapped out the entire preaching calendar between now and next summer, and uh, that feels really good, and I'll be sharing that as we, we go along. And, uh, and so, in fact, after about being away for maybe two or three weeks, I said to Kim in Michigan, I said, I, I could go back to Scottsdale now. And she said, well, that's good. We're not. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I was walking in last night to preach, and I realized why it's not fun to be here in August. But I am glad to be back with all of you. And I will tell you, too, and, and I know some of you are going to say this is silly, but, you know, I dialed in every week online to uh, listen to our guest preachers. So I, I heard young Lucas, and, uh, and then Daryl, and then Tim Kimmel, and then uh, obviously um, Schrader. And, and, and I gotta tell you, I, I feel like you were treated to such great teaching while I'm away that I, I yeah, amen. You know, and, and though they're all very, very good, obviously my favorite is who? Schrader, yeah, because I really love Tom Schrader. We're just such dear friends, and uh, I think he's such a gifted, gifted communicator. In fact, it makes me sick because I, I got to tell you, he probably put five hours into that sermon last week, you know, and, and he's just so anointed, and it actually made me a little bit nervous about coming back, and uh, so, but uh, that's okay. I, uh, I spend my life insecure. So with that said, let's, uh, let's pray, and I, as Troy mentioned, I am going to talk about the uh, church for the next three weeks. Man, I, I, you know, Bill Hybels once said that, uh, you know, when it comes to leadership, that you need to cast the vision of the church once every three weeks. And the last time I talked to you guys about our vision statement was 2008. So I am an utter failure when it comes to that. And so I thought, boy, let's spend a few weeks just cementing and even getting a fresh look at our vision and our mission and our values. So I've entitled this, we call it Be the Church, but, but the subtitle is probably even more important. It's called What Makes Us, Us. So, so if you ever wondered who we are as a church, why do we meet, what's this all really about, what is God thinking of all this, that's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. So with that said, let's dive in and pray, and then we'll go to the Word. Father, as you know, I'm very grateful for these people here and at our other venues and campuses because uh, as I spent some time away, my heart missed them and missed being with uh, the people here of Scottsdale Bible Church. And so I pray, God, that as we uh, now uh, kind of reignite around our vision that you've given us and the mission that comes right from your word and then the values that you've given specifically even to Scottsdale Bible Church, God, I pray that you might get our hearts beating a little bit faster. Uh, Lord, may we, we get excited and impassioned about the things that you have called us to 
as a church. God, help us to truly understand what makes us us as followers of your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that as we open your book now, that you would speak to us. And may, Lord, we be a little bit different when we walk out of here in about 40, 45 minutes. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. So to get us started here this morning, I want you to think of the power of a vision and then even the power of a vision when we dare to put it into a single, simple to understand statement. Uh, James Kuzis and Barry Posner in their book, The Leadership Challenge, say this. I like this quote. They say, every organization, every social movement begins with a dream. The dream or vision is the force that invents the future. And they're spot on. You see, a vision is simply a preferred future. It's what we dream about on the horizon. And every one of you have visions for your life, whether you know it or not. You have visions for your vocational life, your personal life, your family life. And there's even visions that we have that God has for the church. And the power of a vision is that once you can consciously declare what it is you're after, what you want to see come true on the horizon, what you hope your future will be, then you can begin to turn dreams into reality. And it's very powerful to consciously declare a vision and see it become reality. Uh, Many of you experience this every day in in the organizations that you might uh, interact with, and and you don't even know it. Uh, This week, I looked up online what some of the vision statements were, stated vision statements of some of the most popular organizations around today. So look at Amazon, uh, their vision statement. Amazon says that their vision is, and I quote, to be Earth's most customer-centric company, to build a place where people can come to find and discover anything they might want to buy online. You know, I found interesting about that is when I first went to Amazon years ago, I thought it was just books, right? Because that's what they started with. And over the years, man, they added everything to this. You you can buy like a car now, I don't know, on, on Amazon. I mean, everything's there. That fits their vision. That's what they're shooting for. Or how about this organization here, Harley-Davidson? Some of you own Harley-Davidson. Here's their vision statement, to fulfill dreams through the experience of motorcycling. I mean, that's what they're really trying to do. Get somebody in the seat of a Harley and watch them experience their dreams. That's what Harley is shooting for. And many Harley-Davidson fanatics would say that's coming true. I I like this one. Many of you go to Starbucks. Their vision is to share great coffee with our friends and help make the world a little better. And again, whether you like Starbucks or not, they have done that very well. People go there to gather. They go there to have a cup of coffee, and they're very philanthropic. They do things to help make the world a better place. And this one is actually uh, something that's more close home to me, Hilton. I'm a Hilton Honors member. To fill the earth with the light and warmth of hospitality. You know, there's some hotels that I go to, and I got to tell you, I don't feel very welcome. How about you? But when I go to a Hilton, I experience that because that's their vision and it's coming true. This one was actually my favorite, Kraft Foods, very simple vision statement, to make today delicious. I'm so glad they didn't say to make today healthy, right? Because if you've ever had Kraft macaroni and cheese, it is not healthy, but it's delicious. 
And so somebody at Kraft years ago said, this is our vision. And again, whether you nutritional nuts like it or not, it's coming true. And then how about this one for our families? This is the last one, Toys R Us. To put joy in kids' hearts and a smile on parents' faces. When my kids were young, Kim and I loved going to Toys R Us, and that is exactly what happened. They put joy in their hearts and a smile on Kim's and mine faces. What do all of these have in common? Guys, don't miss this. It's simple. Somebody in history past gave concerted thought to what they wanted their organization to be, to what their preferred future would look like, and they wrote it down and they went for it. And in many of the cases, because they did that, they attained it. And what you simply need to know is that it's no different for God and his church. If you don't hear anything else today, what I need you to grab onto today is that God has a vision for his church. He does. And I'm even going to show you today that he's written it down for us. God dreams about what his church should and can become. When he thinks of you and I, he has a preferred future, something on the horizon that he wants us to be and he wants us to all rally around. And so when I came here to be your pastor almost a decade ago, I worked with our elders to make a very clear vision statement that we would all rally around, that we would all know. And I'm going to share that with you today because I think it's thoroughly biblical. You're going to see that today. And it's really what I believe God is dreaming about for you and for me and for us as a church. So here it is, the vision that we believe God has for his church universal, which includes us as a local expression called Scottsdale Bible Church. And it's this, to create a community of Christ followers marked by unwavering faith in that same Jesus and an unconditional love for those around us, including each other. That's what God is dreaming about for you and me to be a community of Christ followers marked by unwavering faith and unconditional love. And so notice first, this is really rich, that God wants us to be a community. And you're saying, well, what else could we be? See, over the years, I've heard people call the church an institution. Haven't you heard that before? The institution. That sounds so boring to me. And quite frankly, you can't find that one in the Bible. I've heard people refer to the church as an organization. In fact, I hear that quite often from business people. I don't know, that sounds so structured and even stilted to me. And again, I, I don't see that in the scriptures. Certainly, we're not a club. Do we all understand that? Some people treat it as a club, but clubs tend to be more, well, shallow in nature. They're not bad. It's just that you're rallying around things that aren't always the most meaningful. That's not us at all. And then the young people today try to call the church a movement. I hear that one a lot today. They're so activists. We're a movement. And I, I go, again, I know what you're trying to say, but I don't think that's even the core. No, listen, gang. At core, what God dreams about is that you and I are a community, organic in nature, relational in focus, bound together by our mutual faith and love toward Jesus Christ. We're a community of Christ followers, first and foremost, before we build any buildings, start any programs, have any policies, do any ministries, you can jettison all of that, and you still have the community of faith. As Jesus said when he was on this earth, where two or three come together in my name, 
there I am among them. Which means this idea of the church transcends a lot of what you and I think of church today. In essence, it's a community. If you don't believe me, I want you to look at how the Bible describes the very first Christian church that was formed right after Jesus ascended into heaven and gave us the Holy Spirit. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. The context is is that Peter had just preached a killer sermon, and about 3,000 people responded and came to faith in Christ. And notice the description that occurs right at this point. Acts 2, verses 41 to 47. It says, So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Pause right there. This is the first megachurch in the Bible. Do we all understand that? I I mean, some people don't like megachurches today. We'll take it up with God because on that day, 3,000 people came to Christ, and they had one big church growth problem. So notice what they did. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't know about you guys, but when I read this, what I see more than anything else being described here is a community that God is forming It's relational. They're together. They're sharing. They're praying. They're breaking bread together. It's organic in nature. It's focused first and foremost on Jesus, but then secondarily and quickly on people, both saved people as well as lost people. Don't miss this. It's an important precursor. It's a community of Christ followers that God is after. I remind myself of this every day as I pastor in this place because we got a lot of programs and policies and facilities and all these things. None of that at the end of the day matters. What matters is you and me banding together as a church and God labeling us a community. That is the church. Now, Believe it or not, we're just ramping up because it doesn't stop there. Believe it or not, this idea of community is really just preamble. It's the soil for which the oak tree of the church is to grow in. You see, the church, Jesus likened at one point the kingdom to a tree, uh, the largest tree. Uh, and, and, And when this tree grows, it bears fruit. And it's interesting, when you look closely at the scripture, the fruit that God hopes you and I will bear, the things that we will be known for, the markers of us as God's people primarily come in two forms. I want to show you what I mean. A few years back, probably almost a decade and a half ago, I was on one of my regular study breaks and I was praying and thinking about life in general and the church. And I was asking myself on this particular study break, what are some of the repeated themes in scripture that maybe I can devote my life to, that God has or dreams about for us, his people, as the church. 
And I started to just think naturally, because I'm seminary trained and I, I know the Bible fairly well, I started thinking naturally about faith and love as kind of the twin pillars that I seem to always read about in the Bible, especially the New Testament. Even 15 years ago, I had a Bible program on the computer where I could do searches on it. And I can still remember sitting there, I think I was in Wyoming on a study break, and I, I typed in uh, faith and love into the original Greek. Pistis is the word for faith, and agape is the primary word for love. And, and I looked at what the results were, and I got to tell you, I was absolutely blown away. I found on that study break that faith and love, pistis and agape, appear together in the same sentence 26 times in 14 New Testament books. That's almost two-thirds of the New Testament epistles. So from Corinthians to Revelation, pistis and agape appear 26 times in the exact same sentence in two-thirds of the New Testament epistles. And I further found that Paul, James, and John all used these two words in their writings. The only one who didn't was Peter. But when you look closely at Peter's epistles, he does say the same thing, just using different Greek words. And then as if all of this were not enough, what really blew me away is that when I looked at every one of these 26 occurrences, again, faith and love in the same sentence, I noticed that they tended to appear either at the beginning or the end of these epistles precisely when the writer wanted to communicate some bottom line truth about God and his people. And I started to add it up, and what started to jump off the page to me is what God dreams about, what he underlines, what he hopes will be on the, on the horizon for us as his people. Let me show you what I mean. This is going to feel monotonous to you, but good. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this, but now faith, hope, and love abide, they remain, and the greatest of these is, say it with me, love. We're just wrapping up. So now notice what Galatians 5, 6 says toward the end of Galatians. It says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Then let's flip to the next book. Look at how Ephesians starts in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, for this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and the love for all the saints, do not cease giving, I do not cease giving thanks for you while I'm making mention of you in my prayers. Then go to the end of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 23. He closes it by saying, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. This is how this book starts. He says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love. Look at how Timothy starts here, 1 Timothy 1.5. But the goal of our instruction, pause right there, the thing that we're shooting for in all of this is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We're not done. Look at Philemon, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which I have toward the Lord Jesus and toward you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Are, are you starting to see? I mean, guys, I'm telling you, it's everywhere. We're just scratching the surface here. Kind of like a scratch CD. You ever had a scratch CD get stuck and it repeats the same notes over and over again? That's the Bible when it comes to this twin idea of faith and love. It's faith and love, 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 over and over again. And it hit me 
as I was studying this, again, about 15 years ago, that what God is really and truly after in his people, in this community of Christ followers that he calls together, is this spirit-empowered ability to trust him with a faith that rises above any and all circumstances that life might throw our way, and then also the ability to love others with a love that is not experienced by the world at large. In other words, it's an unwavering faith that God is after in us, combined with an unconditional love of those around us. This is what he dreams about. I'm telling you, this is what his vision is for you and me. And though this seems like so simple, if not vanilla to some of you, I'm going to spend the rest of my time with you today trying to, to have this happen to you because it happens to me on a regular basis. And that was when I, when I, when I actually latch onto this, my heart starts to beat a little bit faster. And my adrenaline starts to flow a little bit more freely when I realize what God is really after in us. Have you ever thought about what unwavering faith really is? I mean, we use the word all the time, faith, 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 faith. In fact, it's really vogue today. We don't even like to talk about Jesus. We just like to say, well, that person's a person of faith. It's much more politically correct to say that. Have you ever thought, though, about what faith is, and especially faith when our object is Jesus? Years ago, I put together a very good, clear definition of faith. Let me give it to you right now because... I think this adds teeth and grit to this idea of faith. Faith is a consistent, stubborn trust in the Trinitarian God that is not hampered by circumstances or conditions. Feel challenged yet? <laughs> See, some of you say, oh, faith is easy. Uh, no, it's not. It's a consistent, stubborn trust in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is not determined or at all hampered by circumstances or conditions. If you don't think this is the definition of faith, look at Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 6. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that you do not see, meaning God and his kingdom. And without faith, it's impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, faith, gang, is unshakable confidence concerning all the things that God has on the horizon. It's a rock-solid conviction about the things that you do not see. That's faith. It's unwavering in its disposition. It's unhindered in its ability to trust God with faithfulness and obedience. As Paul would say in Ephesians 4, faith is not tossed here and there by every wind and wave of teaching. Or as the author of Hebrews would say, faith does not shrink back when the odds are against us. No, faith is only faith when it looks circumstances in the face and says, bring it on. I got somebody much bigger in my corner, and his name is God. And Jesus is my Savior. The Spirit is the one who empowers me. And with them, I can trust him for anything in my life. You see, unwavering faith is what God is after in his followers. It's the kind that pleases him. It's the only kind that he rewards. So let's talk about the election coming up this fall, shall we? 
Oh my gosh, is it just me? I mean, I spent much of my summer break interacting with people on email and reading tons of articles. I, I mean, I'm, I'm 52 years old right now. I never thought that I'd see this difficult, contentious kind of choice in election than we're experiencing right now. I mean, some of you lived through JFK when he became our first Catholic president. Uh, some of you then lived through the Nixon years, you know, where that was a toughie and Nixon became a crook and all, oh, that was a mess. And then, you know, some of you lived through Reagan, and though now many people look back fondly on Reagan. I mean, when Reagan first got elected, or first went for office, they said an actor can't become a, a president. You know, I mean, it was very contentious. And then certainly the Clinton years, and, and then Bush, and then Obama, our first African-American president. I mean, there have been some, some, some real milestones. But, but I never thought it could get this ugly, this divisive. And, and even for Christians, let's be honest, this difficult. That's what I'm really mired in right now is that I'm, I, I have friends who are good, wonderful pastors, Christian leaders that are part of that hashtag never Trump movement. <laughs> and, and then I have other friends that, that are basically saying, you know, how could you not vote for Trump? I mean, in light of Hillary, I mean, he's the only choice. And I, I, I mean, I, I get it. I get it. it, it it's very, very difficult. And even right now, some of you are saying, no, Jamie, it's not difficult because you have a very strong opinion <laughs> on this. And honestly, I'm starting to get emails now saying, Jamie, what are you going to say publicly about this? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I have my own personal opinions, but for years, I, I've never brought my opinions, you know, on, on a political issue, usually to bear publicly as a pastor. I've been very, very careful on that. And I am praying about what I'm going to say uh, this fall. I actually ha have some time reserved in the pulpit here in October, as I did four years ago, in which I want to address the election, and, and some of you are going, ooh, what are you going to say? I have the foggiest idea. You can pray for me because I am praying to God in all seriousness about what I want to say. Uh, but I do know what I want to say right now at this stage. Now listen very closely because it's exactly what we're looking at here today. When it comes to all that's going on in our political realm right now, let me ask you a loaded question. Do you think God in heaven is up there worrying and biting his fingernails over what's about to happen here on earth, yes or no? no. Of course not. And it's not just because God knows the outcome. Of course he does. Now watch this. Not only does God know the outcome, he's in control of the outcome. Amen? He is. And again, I know the pushback on that. People say, well, I know God is sovereign, but, but we still need to do our part. I'll grant you that. We do. And I'm giving thought to what I'm going to say and how do we do our part and what does this mean for a Christian? I get all that. But I think what's happening right now among some, if not many, Christians is that we're taking that a step further. And the way I hear people talk is that we're pinning so much on this election. It's like a do or die thing that I think you forget Jesus' words. Do you remember these words? My kingdom is not of this world. It's not. And no matter what happens in the political, social, cultural realm, I know it has ramifications. I'm not an idiot. But no matter what happens there, it does not have to affect our souls. It doesn't affect the community of faith. Listen, you need to see it like this. There have been Christians in history past who have had much more difficult cultural, social, and political circumstances than you and I face. Do we all understand that? Give me a head nod. Do you understand that? And you know what? Sometimes God did his best work in those circumstances. 
Sometimes God says, this is not going to hinder the church. Why? Because the gates of hell cannot come against his kingdom. Greater is he that lives in you than he that is in this world. And he inhabits the praises of his people. He inhabits his church. He has his hand upon his church. And he has a vision for this church. And one of the biggest visions he has, gang, is that you and I, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, we trust him no matter what. Amen? Amen. We do. And, and, and my only challenge to you, and I know some of you are going, why are you harping on this? Well, my only challenge is I would just love to hear more of that from many of you than the other. I get we're worried. I get we're concerned. Don't get me wrong. I'm reading on this too. I'm praying about it. I'm into this. And again, I fall into some of the traps you do. I watch Fox News and get angry. I do. I mean, I love it. I watch Fox News. I'll come to bed and Kim goes, what's wrong with you? And she's like going, stop watching Fox News, you know, read your Bible. And, 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 and so I, I get that. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. I mean, I almost hear Christian leaders getting fatalistic about this. And I go, here's the key. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Is your faith in a political system? Is it in cultural reengineering? Is it in society? Again, I know we want the best for our kids and grandkids. But wouldn't the best fear for our kids and grandkids to hand them off a baton of unwavering faith and unconditional love so that no matter what happens to this fallen world that is not our home, which is what the Bible says, no matter what happens in this place, they stand strong and they tie their soul to Jesus and they trust him. Uh, Frederick Buechner as a great theologian. Go to the very last side if you can, guys. Frederick Buechner once said this. Um, I, I like this quote. He says, the place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now, now I want you to give a lot of thought to that right now. Some of you think that your deepest gladness is going to be met with temporal security this side of heaven. Having a good job having kids that turn out really well, <laughs> making sure you have a good retirement, again, making sure that values get reinstilled into our nation. All good things to want. Here's what you need to know today. That is not where your deepest gladness will be found. Do you know why I know that? Because there are people who don't know Jesus that have all of that, and they're facing a Christless eternity, and they have no joy ultimately flowing out of their soul. So it's possible to have all of that, which we surround so much of our lives with, and not have the deepest gladness that God offers. No, the deepest gladness God offers is only found in him, which is why he points us to unwavering faith and unconditional love. Because he knows when those become the core values of our life, then watch this. We're now in a place where he promises the deepest gladness and it's what the world is hungering for the most. And so Beekner's right, right. The place that God calls you to is a place where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meet. That's what he dreams about for you. And it's all about unwavering faith. And might I add, because we're going to wrap up here in a minute and go to the communion table, it's also about unconditional love. One of my favorite passages, you guys all know this passage too, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
And then verses four through seven, it gives us a description of love. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then it goes on to say, love never ends in the ESV. In the New American Standard and NIV say, love never fails. Fails at what? <laughs> well, being patient, kind, and not envying. It, you know, somebody challenged me years ago, and it was re-challenged to me by my friend Steve recently, that one of the most powerful things for you to do with this passage is to insert your name here. Ooh, T talk about like challenging. Jamie is patient and kind. Jamie does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. Jamie does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable. I can't even say it without laughing. He's not irritable or resentful. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, Jamie does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but always rejoices with the truth. Jamie bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jamie never fails. See, some of you earlier thought, really, unconditional love, Jamie, unconditional love, that's what you got for me? <laughs> Start to see it for what it is, gang. This is what God is calling you and me to each moment of each day. Every relational interaction we have depends on our ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to love the people around us. And that as we love them, God says he will do his work in their hearts and even bring them to faith in Jesus through our love. Because love isn't always soft. I mean, love rejoices not at wrongdoing, but with the truth. And so love is simply about accepting people where they are, caring for them where they are, but then also showing them the truth of where their life is and who Jesus is. So I define love this way, and I think this is what we need to see out of more Christians. Unconditional love is simply love without strings attached. It's love with no ifs, ands, or buts, right? Oh, you guys are pathetic, right? See, some of you aren't convinced about this. You're saying, really, really, really? Yeah, think about our world. Our world has the most conditional form of love, oh my gosh, that, that you ever see. I, I mean, even most people's approach to marriage today is what? Well, I'll love you if, as long as you don't let me down, as long as you keep me happy, as long as you don't do this, as long as you do do that. That's why we have so many divorces, because people have no idea of the sticking power of love. Most of your friendships are very conditional in their love. Most of your relationships are that way. God calls the church, you and I, to be the kind of people that dare to love those around us with a kind of love that says, I will never give up on you. What do you think it means when it says love is patient, love is kind? It does not envy, it does not boast. It believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. It's unconditional in nature. It says no matter what, Denny, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what struggles you have in the future, I'll never give up on you. I will always love you. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus says. You see, that's the kind of love God is looking for from you and I. And again, our world sees so little of this. Imagine what would happen if they experienced that kind of love from 6,000 members of Scottsdale Bible Church. There'd be no stopping us in this city. There'd be no stopping the gospel moving forward with that kind of love. But again, the challenge is, do we love like that? 
You see, we've got to wrap this up. That, that's the challenge, really, of this whole thing, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I wrote this down in my notes here. I thought, do others know you and I by an unwavering faith and an unconditional love? See, I, I mean, that's the key question. And again, I don't want to put guilt on you here because I know you've got enough of that in your life. But if I was to go to your work this week and say, <laughs> I'll pick on Scotty here in the front row. Uh, Scotty's retired. But if, I, if Scotty had a job and I went to your work when you were a cop and said, describe Scotty Baker to me. Well, he's this and that. No, no, no. Describe his faith. You guys know he's a Christian, right? Like they at least know that. Yeah. So so describe his faith. See, here's what I fear is that sometimes the way people might describe us today is, well, you know, they're, they're really serious. They're, they're, they're very serious people. And, and, and they're men and women of conviction, and they're, 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 they take the moral high road, and they, they, they talk to me a lot about, about things, you know, and they know the Bible really well. And, and again, are those good things for people to say about us, yes or no? Yeah, they are. Again, but if that's the extent of how somebody described you, <laughs> I'd say they're not really seeing what God's dreaming about in your life. Because you see, the way that God wants your coworkers, your friends, your, your unsaved neighbors, all your family members that are known the Lord, the way that he wants them to describe you is this. You, you, know, you know, when John had that terrible, terrible loss in his life, man, I got to tell you, I, I never think somebody could trust God through something like that. I, I just never thought they could do that. I mean, most people just get angry at God and say, well, how could you allow that to happen? But John, man, man, he hung in there with God. And this guy's just, this dude's just got faith. And you know what, when, when I share with John uh, in a moment of vulnerability, some, some really ugly things about my life, even though I'm not a Christian or that, I'm just ashamed of those things. You know, he listened to me and he asked me questions. And, and then he, he shared some things that were hard with me that were kind of truth oriented. I don't think I liked that, but he was the only guy that had the guts to do it. Everybody else was just telling me to kind of just give into my life. And see, wouldn't it be great if that's how people described you? Because you see, that's the Jesus that hopefully eventually they're going to come to know. I don't know about you guys, but that's the Jesus that I relate to. The Jesus that I relate to is a Jesus who saved my soul. As Psalm 40 says, who took me from the pit and put me on solid ground in the midst of my sin and loved me with an unconditional love that died for my sins and then looked at me and said, now trust me. Don't ever waver. Trust me through it all and you will get through it. See, that's the Jesus I know. And that's the Jesus that you know. And that's the Jesus that we need to introduce to people. It's just that they're never going to see it if they don't sense this unwavering faith and this unconditional love in us. I, I got to tell you, gang, God has a dream for your life. He has a dream for our church. And, and every day that I wake up and I come on campus here or I'm meeting with somebody in the community, I, I'm very cognizant of this dream. I'm very protective of it. I really have a very simple goal for you and I as a church, and that is that somehow, some way, as we go along, we're becoming more faith-filled, more tenacious in our love for Jesus and our focus on him, and more committed to each other and to those around us. Because I know in a simple, profound, powerful way, if we do that, God will use us. There'll be no stopping us. For the first three centuries of the church, some of you know this, they didn't have buildings, they didn't have budgets, they didn't have paid pastors. They had nothing that we rely on today, nothing. And yet Christianity spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, then to North Africa, and then over to Macedonia and into Asia and Europe. 
Uh, by the time Augustine came in the 4th, 5th century, uh, Christianity had gone all the way over to England. I mean, it just spread like wildfire in the first three centuries without any money, without any buildings, no radio advertisement, nothing like that. Just a bunch of rabid people who were turned on to Jesus, telling others about him, trusting him no matter what, and loving them into the kingdom. You and I can do that. And I can't wait to see how he does that in us. Next week, we're going to take a look at the mission of our church. Because some of you are going, how do we actually do that? We're going to answer that next week. We're going to talk about what our mission is and how we start moving toward our vision. But, but before we even get to that, just pause this week on our vision and, and ask yourself, how loving am I? How faithful am I? And if you find yourself, like I do, having a deficit there, don't shame yourself. Go to God with that. And just say, God, I need more faith. I need more love. And as you pray that prayer, duck. Because he's going to answer that in your life. Let's pray before we go to the communion table. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity of your word. That 26 times in 14 books, in the same sentence, beginning and end, you tell us what it is you dream about. That faith and love are the twin pillars. They're the two fruits of the tree of the church that you want to see in each of us individually and then collectively as a church. God, in so many ways, I'm very proud of Scottsdale Bible Church. I'm proud of our 55-year history. I'm proud of, of the last decade and how we've transitioned in so many ways. And that, Lord, we still have such a multi-generational, faith-filled, loving church. But, God, I ask you to take us even deeper. I ask you, God, to break us even more when it comes to us being the church and that, Lord, in that we might find you, find our sufficiency and satisfaction in you and then be even more usable in your hands. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the honor we have to call you Lord and Savior and to place our trust in you. As we go to the communion table now and here in our venues and campuses, God, may this be a rich, rich time of faith and love in you. In Christ's name we pray and we all say together, amen. amen.